News Hounds from Queen City Nerve is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. And welcome back to Queen City Nerve's News Hounds podcast. This is episode five. And I am Editor-in-Chief Ryan Pitkin with my co-host Justin LaFrancois over here mixing up drinks. How's it going, man? It's going well. What are you making today? Uh, spice eggnog, essentially. I've got Mount Gay Black Barrel Rum, Don Q Cristal Clear Rum, some orange liqueur, creme de cacao, and eggnog with a nutmeg sprinkle on top. We are getting very autumnal. Well, not even autumnal. We're getting Christmassy. It's Christmas time. It's awesome. And we have a very special guest today. The very first <clears throat> exclusive, just one person show with one guest, and it is Keith Cradle, which is only right because he is also, on top of the things we'll be talking about today in his community work, he is also the host of Crafted with Cradle, to which we owe a part of our idea here with with uh, news hounds. What's up, Keith? It's good, man. So I mean, you know, all you need is me. Right. Exactly. Yeah, we don't need nobody else. I think we all have a good rapport here. We're just going to have a great discussion. We don't need any back and forth. We got to get somebody on here that we don't like and that doesn't like us. Right. That'll be a good episode. Or doesn't like drinking. We got I mean, this, is, this is a straight setup. Absolutely. Yeah, if you don't like drinking, you can't come. So, Keith, uh, give us a real quick rundown of Crafted with Cradle. Give us a little plug before we get into the other uh, other stuff. So, Crafted with Cradle is a podcast um, that we do. Um, our tagline is curated conversations over cocktails. And so we, we bring in people who are doing amazing things in our art community here in Charlotte. And so we want to try to bring more awareness to art, art engagement, cultural engage- engagement activities, and give people an opportunity to hear conversations from not only artists, but gallerists, um, curators, you know, people who are running institutions, so they can get a better look and a better picture at what's happening inside of Charlotte. So if they don't feel involved, these conversations are a gateway and a warm opening to getting involved. And I think it makes it easy, it makes it plausible, um, and again, it shines a light on the amazing work that's being done in our community by our artists. Right, absolutely. And you are just a guest speaker on Tuesday night um, at a a discussion about that same sort of thing at Gantt Center. Um, And we'll be talking about that a little bit more later, just about the connection between art and community work. Sure. We're going to discuss this new Levine exhibit uh, about Brooklyn. uh, And we'll get to that later. So let's just jump right into it because... The news topic that we'll be discussing today is some of the work that you've been doing at the Mecklenburg County Sheriff's Office. You are the Director of Youth Programs with MCSO, is that correct? Correct, and soon to add juvenile programs to that starting December 1st. Okay, so what's the difference there between, I sort of just took Director of Youth Programs to mean juvenile programs. What, mm-hmm. What's the new title encompass? So primarily it's just the designation and the law. Mm-hmm. Um, currently, um, as it stands, you got about another week and a half here before we move into juvenile detention. Mm-hmm. Um, and so essentially, you know, North Carolina raced to the bottom or, <laughs> or to the top at being the last state in the union to want to prosecute um, youth under the age of 18 um, as adults. Right. And so we are finally making headway in doing this, and this Raise the Age initiative hits, again, like I said, December 1st. Um, and so while we'll still have youthful offenders mm-hmm. inside of our system, those are kids who are not, quote-unquote, grandfathered in. Mm-hmm. Everyone else coming in at, into the system um, with an arrest after December, well, November 30th, beginning right. of December 1st, will be considered a juvenile. Um, and so 
we'll still have both populations, and so I have to direct and supervise the staff that is working with both of those populations. So it's right. just an added, and then eventually, hopefully, youth will leave out mm-hmm. and we'll just be focused on juveniles. Right. And Raise the Age effort here in the state has been um, a long time coming, a lot of different people involved. Um, it's unfortunately been too long of an effort because we got, as you mentioned earlier, we got dragged behind and we were the last state in the union. That's right. Last state in the union to actually... When South Carolina beat you. Right. When Alabama <laughs> beat you. Right. Come on. I know a few people that'll be mad at that comment. I like to I like to make those folks mad. Me too. Um, so why, I mean, why is that? What, what was the holdup? Who was, who were the last defenders of this sort of archaic prosecuting kids? It usually comes down to, um, you know, the folk in the legislation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those folk that are at the state level, um, that are doing the governance and, and all the laws, you know, they're the ones primarily who needed to, to understand that, you know, this battle that we were waging in terms of advocacy for kids, for juvenile detention, that noise wasn't going to quiet down. Mm-hmm. Um, and But then, of course, they saw, I guess, the data and the trending across the country. So it was other states, like it's like a domino effect, as other states just kept falling and saying, you know what, we need to do this. And while other states have been doing this for, you know, 20, 30 years, I mean, this is not new. You know, mm-hmm. they understood that kids are children. These kids are still children, and you don't need to be prosecuting them as adults. Mm-hmm. And so finally, again, you know, North Carolina, New York before North Carolina, so my home state, you know, big up to being second to last. I don't hey. know if you want that designation. Um, <laughs> you know, New York finally said, hey, listen, we're on board, leaving North Carolina out there. And then finally the state legislation um, said, okay, we can get this done. But like anything else, I tell, I tell folk, it, it came down to money. Mm-hmm. And, and while you can advocate change legislation, someone has to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And there was a, I think the bigger holdup was on the money side, mm-hmm. that organizations, institutions, um, the, the criminal justice system couldn't take the weight of changing the system on a dime and then trying to figure out the funding as we, as we go. And so they wanted to be, I think, a little bit um, proactive in that approach and saying, hey, listen, we passed the legislation in 2017, but it didn't go into effect until 2019, giving people two years to get their ducks in a row. Right. And you've done a lot of work since, um, I guess, I don't know if you could say newly elected anymore. This has been the first year in office for Sheriff Gary McFadden, and working under him, you've done a lot of work there at the detention center, Jail North specifically, and we're going to get into some of the details of that. But just right now, before we talk about all the, the new sort of changes that have been made there, just in general, it's estimated that just immediately, uh, my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, Jail North will go from 40 to 100 um, inmates between 16 and 17. Is that about accurate? So More the, than 100? So that's, that's, that is the, that is the uh, I would say, that, that is the state speculation. Okay. And, and so what we're working off is a, a working model in terms of bed space. Mm-hmm. And at this time, um, Sheriff McFadden is saying, you know, for, for Mecklenburg County, we have an available 72 beds. Mm-hmm. So that's what we are appropriating for detention space. And so we won't see 200, 300, because we only have 72 beds. Right. You also have to parcel that out for girls, so because girls and boys can't be together. So if you think about that in its context, you, you usually have more boys than girls inside of any system. So we'll have a majority amount of beds for boys. Mm-hmm. So I, we're doing 16 beds for girls. You do the math. So that's what another... 56 beds for the boys. So that gives you your 72. Right. Um, and so that's your mix. And that's not saying on December 1, 50 kids, kids are, are gonna walking through the in. door. 
we still have a, a current population of youth that we have that we have to phase out. And as those beds become available, you phase in. Right. So, so that's kind of, that's the math. And that's kind of what that looks like. Right. And just as far as I've read in a couple different spots that it's, you guys are sort of serving as a model um, statewide for some of the changes that you've done. Um, and from what I understood, this is very vague to me in the articles that I've read. It says the state is looking at turning Jail North into a state facility. What does that mean? And is that something that you guys are in constant communication about? Is that something that's close to happening or is it just sort of an idea that's floating around? So more or less, that's just conversation because most uh, juvenile detention facilities, YDCs, are run by the state. Mm -hmm. So this is fairly new for counties to do it. And so, you know, in Mecklenburg County, the sheriff is the highest ranking law enforcement official. And so he has that purview to decide if he wants to do this or not, which he does, but also giving that jurisdiction over to the state. Mm -hmm. We don't want to do that. We understand that these are our children. We know how to service them. And we want to continue to do that in the best interest of those kids. So we wouldn't become a state facility. Now, he has that, he has that right to do that if he so mm-hmm. chooses. Says, you know what? We can't afford it. We don't want to do it. Have the state come over and take it over. That's not what's going to happen here in Mecklenburg County. Right. Um, the sheriff is, is high on these kids. I mean, he loves these children. And he wants to make sure that they're cared for, taken care of. And we believe in our hands that is the best possible solution. Right. And I know this is something that you're equally passionate about. Um, I've been I've known you for quite some time, and it, I just like to watch you talk about it. Like right now, I can just see you getting. This is what your passion yeah. is. So tell me a little bit about when did you come to Charlotte, and then how did that how did that process come about to where you got fully involved in this sort of work? So I got to Charlotte um, in in 1992. So you know I'm 44. Um, I came here to go to Johnson C. Smith, mm-hmm. and so I did my undergrad at Smith. And, and like a lot of kids at that time, you know, leaving New York was one of those things that you understood was going to help, I think, be a betterment in my life. And not going back to New York was part of the plan that, hey, I was coming here to get some emancipation. I wanted to live on my own. And I just ended up staying. And, you know, from, from that experience, I was able to start, you know, meeting people, networking, um, and working with inside this community and recognizing some of the issues that we were having. Um, one of my first jobs when I was still at Smith and when I graduated, there's a, um, a CVS on Beatty's Ford Road. And I worked at that Beatty's Ford Road CVS in college and a little bit after. And what I saw were, you know, kids coming inside that store on a consistent basis, adults too, and they were just cleaning fucking house. I mean, right. stealing everything. And you're like, what's going on right. that these kids have to do this? And here I am, a college student. And you're you know, not trying to stop anybody. Oh, <laughs> hell, I'm getting paid, you know, like seven fifteen an hour. <laughs> And, and I wasn't, you know, who am I going to say, oh, come on, put that back. Yeah. Like, nah, I'm watching this dude take it. Right. And, and the Mark cra- that down. Come on. And the craziest thing I saw, one of my managers at the time, um, he tried to play hero on that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and these folk, you know, they were desperate. Mm-hmm. And, and he tried to stop a dude, and the dude told him, listen, man, if you don't go back in that office, you know, I'm going to fuck you up. Right. And, and he wasn't trying to pay attention to that. He, I thought he felt he could stop the guy. Dude pulled a gun on him right there. Mm-hmm. And he went in that office and never came back out right. <laughs> and transferred the next day. Wow. And, and it's things like that that, you know, a, a, a pack of soap's not worth mm-hmm. your life. You know what I'm saying? Right. But what I was looking at, you know, was the trajectory of those kids and saying, you know, what's going on in these neighborhoods, particularly if I was going to school here and if I was going to live in Charlotte, what could I do to help that out? So when I left Smith, 
um, you know, I started doing concert promotion for a few years. So I was working for Bernard Bailey, um, and Bernard was bringing shows to Charlotte. So this is, you know, about, it's like 98, 99, 2000. So you're talking about some of the biggest shows coming to Charlotte. I was working on the Hard Knock Life tour at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, and you're running with all these folk, and you're like, okay, I'm making money, but am I making a difference? Right. And while I had a great time, you know, doing concert promotion, I just felt it intrinsically that I wasn't having any real impact outside of padding my pockets and, you know, and running around with, you know, with celebrities and and, and shit like that. So I ended up leaving that, and then a friend of mine said, hey, listen, you know, the YMCA is looking to do some hiring. And so I said, cool. So this is at the time, so this is like about, you know, 2004, about 2004, 2005. And the YMCA, YMCA hired me to work out of Dowd. So this is before Stratford Richardson. So all the kids that were in on the west side, so you're talking about Brook Hill, when Brook Hill was really there, right? Southside and Wilmore. And we were tasked, a good friend of mine, Sean Brooks, who passed away, he was tasked with bringing non, well, traditional YMCA programs to a non-traditional environment. And so our job was to you know, talk to these kids about the why, give them programs, and hopefully one day they join the Y, which was kind of ass backwards because mm-hmm. we knew they couldn't afford it. So what right. was, you know, you're like, okay, the parents can't afford it. We know the kids can't afford a membership at the Y. But that wasn't so much of the concern as it was trying to keep them out of trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, um, the health department saw some of the work that we were doing, and I was able to land a job with the Mecklenburg County Health Department. And I was tasked with, again, writing grants and creating fatherhood and community-based initiative programs in some of our, our most distressed communities. Um, and at that time, we were winning state awards, NACO awards for this great program that we were having, reconnecting men with their children, um, creating and fostering relationships out in the community. And I started the first um, reentry-based program with the sheriff's office. So I wasn't with the sheriff's office at the time, but I said, hey, listen, we got guys coming in. They're on probation and parole. They're on work release. How can we provide them services? And the sheriff's office was doing work release at the time. And so we partnered with the sheriff's office and were able to give services to those men and their children. Um, and then you fast forward a year after that, the sheriff's office was looking to do, you know, more progressive programming. Mm-hmm. And so I, so I was able to, basically it was a transfer for music because I was always with the county. So I transferred from the, from the health department over to the sheriff's office where I was the, the program manager for youth and creating some of these programs. Um, and then when Sheriff McFadden won, he said, listen, I love what you're doing. He said, you don't need to be a manager. He said, you need to be directing Nice. Know my department, and he promoted me, and and here we are. That's what's up, and and you've been busy. <laughs> you've yeah. been busy ever since. Let's start with the very beginning, first hundred days. Um, I don't know that how much you had to do with this, or this was a McFadden thing. I think he he ran on this as part of his platform, but mm-hmm. ending solitary confinement. Um, I mean, that's a big deal. It's a huge deal. Um, I don't know if you, I mean I know that you have. I've went and seen those solitary confinement cells, and and how people spend. T- time in them which is nothing um doing nothing and and that's a form of torture in my mind i mean how big of a deal was that and that's before we even get into the the outdoor activities Mm -hmm. that we're about to talk about but just the ending of solitary confinement in general what was some of that the effects of that that you had seen within the detention center so you know what what people should understand is that you know any sheriff could have changed that Mm -hmm. you know it, it really comes down to the purview of the sheriff and what are their values? And so McFadden, you know, Sheriff McFadden is my third sheriff. Um, and I worked for under Sheriff Bailey and under Sheriff Carmichael. Either one of them with a, with a pen stroke on a policy and procedure sheet could have said, let's stop doing this. Mm-hmm. 
it was only Sheriff McFadden who said, you know, not only looking at the data, looking at the trends, recognizing that solitary confinement doesn't work, mm-hmm. said, you know what, I'm doing this. As soon as I, as soon as I get elected, I walk in the door, it's a wrap. It's, it was that easy. Right. But again, the, the information had been out there again for years. Right. It, again, you know, and the, I know you were aware of it. So what we was were, it like to you to, to sit under, underneath other sheriffs and not be able, I mean, just see that happening? It's frustrating. Um, you know, even, even um, you know, one of my former directors, you know, she was an advocate against solitary confinement. And she was trying to push that forward. Mm-hmm. And eventually she got pushed out. See what I'm saying? So, you know, there were people that were saying this 10 years ago. Right. And I'm quite sure there were folks saying this 20 years ago. But it takes, again, you know, this, some agencies are top down. And the sheriff's office is, is primarily top down. The sheriff gets what he wants. And, and, again, working for other sheriffs, I don't think that they were just in tune with wanting to hear new information or recognizing, you know, based on whoever was advising them, that, nah, let's, let's keep doing that, you know, based on whatever they were hearing amongst the facility, folk that were working there. Mm-hmm. And, it, and, it, and, you know, organizations and agencies like the sheriff's office, they're, you know, that, you know, you talk about that parallel, something like the Titanic. It's hard to turn a boat around on a dime when you've got tons of people who have been working there, you know, particularly in law enforcement, where folk have been working there for 20 years, 25 years, right out of high school. And their perspectives aren't going to change, mm-hmm. not when they're in twilight, of their career, right? You know what I'm saying? It's like, listen, I got two more years. I'm yeah. gonna fuck about it. Leave here. me, the, yeah. leave me the fuck alone. Yeah, I'm so I can get my, yeah. So, so why am I looking to rock the boat when I want my pension? I want my pension. Mm-hmm. I want my check. I'm, I, I just want to come in and, and go the fuck home. Mm-hmm. But, but Sheriff McFadden understood that he had heard the information. He knew the information. And again, his, his one of his first things, as soon as he walked in the door, it was like done. And it, and any any sheriff could have done that, but I don't think they wanted to do that. He had again. He has a love and a passion for these children, and he knew what to do right off the bat. Right. And then one thing that we know you had a pretty big hand in, just based on the name alone, Camp Cradle. That's your baby. That's yeah. your project. Um, just give me the rundown of what Camp Cradle consists of at the detention center. So, so again, so again, ideas which are not new. Um, I, we had outdoor space at North since that facility was built. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I had approached, you know, previous administrations saying, listen, can we take these kids outside? They're children, for God's sake. 19 years, from my understanding, that they had not just been let outside at all. Right. To utilize space Wait, what? that's in well, the facility. nobody that was there for 19 years because well, they're yeah, ju- yeah. juveniles, but, but for practice, 19 years, the policy was you, can, you don't go outside. Period. Right. You don't yeah. get to see the sun. Nope. Right. Except for through windows. And, and so you think about that, you know, in its context. Again, a facility that has... An indoor grass facility that you can use. Kids aren't going any fucking way. Like it's right. not like you know we're talking about taking them to Freedom Park. Right. You're talking about hey, there's a in there's a facility that has grass inside the facility that you can use. But other administrations weren't open to that. I had pitched that idea for years. The last time I put it out there was about four years ago. What is the what is the what is the reason? What is the, what do yeah, they say uh, out loud to, to you? You get to go outside in prison. Right. Hour a day outside in the sun. Like so how, 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 how do they answer that? Why was why was that a thing? They don't answer you. That's yeah, what it okay, is. Okay, got you. You put forth a proposal, you know, and and you don't get an answer back, or it's like yeah, we're mulling this over, mm-hmm. or you get resistance. You know what I'm saying from people that will tell you everything wrong with it. 
and not what's right up on the playground one day, like 20 years before whatever right. you're talking about. Could 20 it. years, yeah. So that's them taking recess away. Could have. Right. That happened in my middle school. Right. Could have. <laughs> I mean, but, but again, you're, you're talking about, you know, an opportunity for kids to go outside, natural sunlight, of like, like any one of us. I don't want to sit inside all mm-hmm. damn day. Hell no. Right. And, 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 you know, the interesting thing about Some that. Some days I do. Oh, yeah. that's, good that's luck. different. Yeah, good luck. The, the interesting thing about that is, you know, and I, and I also do state trainings. I do officer trainings. I actually did um, the DPS training this morning for officers. And, and one of the things I, I let them know, I said, first off, let's, let's be honest. You know, jail sucks. Right. You know, it, it's not like, you know, kids are choosing, like, yo, this is, I'm trying to go to that. I'm trying to go to jail, man. What's up? Or the sheriff's officers and TMPD are rounding people up and asking, hey, would you like to come to jail today? Come right. to me. It's not how this is working. So we know that jail sucks. I said, you have to be a diabolical person to think about ways to make someone else worse in a situation where they already feel worse. That's that, and I said, if, you, if you're thinking like that, then you need to rethink your station. And is this the place for you? Because you know, your purview, your job is to try to help someone, particularly young children, find a way out of this. And, and if they're already in a fucked up situation, why are you trying to make it worse? Right. And, and so, you know, you have progressive ideas and thinking, you know, thinkers, ideation around this stuff. And again, while we had the ideas, you need a sheriff, like Sheriff McFadden, who said, Cradle, do what you got to do. Right. He said, whatever you want to do. I mean, he, he, he literally told me that. Are you putting your mouth on the bottle? <laughs> he literally told me that. Because you're supposed to top people off, but how are you doing that if, you, if you're sipping off the bottle? Just, Justin's just pirating it up right now. We're going to have an etiquette course, too, after this. We're going to have an etiquette course. There's, a, there's other rum. <laughs> I don't want that room. But anyway, but <laughs> I'm clean. Clean boy. <laughs> you're right. But but so again, you're you're looking at an opportunity to, to wholeheartedly change and affect children's lives. And so, you know, he he tell he tells me every day, I saw him today. We, we were in a meeting today, and he's like, you know, he's like, he said, Dr. Cradle, he said, What do you need? He asked me that every time I see him. What do you need? And I said, We're good. All I all I need to know is that whatever I do, you're on board for it. So you're talking about implementation of outdoor rec. Um, I'm getting ready to open an indoor rec mm-hmm. center, so he, he let me buy you know ping pong tables, pool tables, air hockey, foosball. What do you got in the outdoor? So the outdoor rec, we got football, badminton, um, cornhole, soccer. Um, but the kids really just want to play flag, flag football. They don't, right. don't want to play nothing else. I, we try to get them to play badminton. They like, man, what the fuck is this? You know, <laughs> I seen your photo up on hey, WBTV with the badminton. Yeah, they didn't look too enthused. Yeah, they, they wasn't. You know, they weren't feeling that. Right. They, they want to play. They want to play flag football. Right. I mean, most of these kids are athletes in high school. And that's what they know. And again, we talk about marginalized communities, kids who the sports that they primarily will play are basketball and football. And so, you know, that's that's what they gravitate to. And we say, listen, whatever makes you happy, go for it. So they'll play a lot of flag football. But we try to introduce them to other things. It just really comes down to, you know, how long will they stick with it versus right. nah, you know, all right, right. Let me go back to what I know. Right. And like I was telling uh, Justin earlier, like prepping this podcast, I don't I don't have any interest in making a podcast that's just an ad for the for the Mecklenburg County Sheriff's Office. We'll take so. it. So I'm trying to like you know find stuff to you know be critical of at least in a little bit, but but Good I, luck. yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like I can't really argue with anything you're doing. I've seen some of the criticisms on different stories. People call it Cupcake Camp or Camp Cupcake. Camp Cupcake. That was just so lame because these are these tough on crime people who got us in the situation that we're in, in the first place. Who expect you know oh you did something wrong, whether it be something out of desperation or whatever it is that got you there, and then they act as if as as if they're gonna want to be there, like you just said. Like you're already you're 16, 17, and you're locked away from from chasing girls. That's already 
that's already it. Right. I mean, I mean, <laughs> you're locked away from your family. So, so you still have a, a segment of, of any community, you mm-hmm. know, Charlotte, Detroit, New York, you know, LA, it doesn't matter. There's still a segment of, of communities that feel that criminal justice is too easy. Right. And, and it, you, you're going to have a bread and water crowd. They don't give a fuck. You did wrong, lock you up, throw away the key, and all you deserve is bread and water. And you're going to have that regardless. And we have that. We have naysayers in our community who say one thing, but you're wondering, where are you getting that information from? So what you don't want us to do is stop a kid and provide them opportunities to be employable, have mm-hmm. skills, say, stop breaking into your car. Which one is it? You, you want to break it in your car or you don't want to break it right. in your car? And, and, so, and, and that's the thing. Even with adults, I am absolutely not one of these tough on crime bread and water people. But with adults, it's even easier to argue that bad faith argument than it is with kids who you know are coming back. Exactly. Regardless, are coming back. Yeah. And they're still, they're still, they're still inside of a window in which they're impressionable um, and they have an opportunity to kind of turn this around. Mm-hmm. If I'm 16 or 17, I still got some opportunities to make this right. Um, and I try to let folks know, you know, think about where we were at 16 and 17. You know, if you weren't on a, a certain path, <laughs> right, we're all one mistake away. Right. You know what I'm saying? From being in some of those same situations. And so what are you thinking about? And, and I think sometimes it only resonates when it becomes someone that they know. Mm-hmm. And, and you have that. that. Oh, yeah, man, lock them up the way the key. But then their cousin gets arrested. Their brother gets arrested. Then it's a whole nother right. fucking story. It's like, oh, yo, hey, can you help me out? I'm trying to. And, and he shouldn't. Because you like, saw him on the whole or them exactly. on the whole road. Exactly. And to you get don't, to that point. And you don't see them. As a criminal, right, you see exactly. them still as, as a the human. person, as a human, and that's what we have to do. We have to humanize this experience for everybody. Again, these are this is someone else's child, right? And that kid is still someone's son, someone's daughter. You know, so it could one day to be possibly someone's father. You got to give these kids opportunities to be more. And if our community just drops, you know, drops it, then trust me, they will find ways yeah. to do something else. Well, I know another part of Camp Cradle that you. Uh, uh, implemented, I was going to say enforced, implemented is the word, is, is different outfits. Mm-hmm. Um, went from, was it jumpsuits or just what were they wearing? So they were they were wearing uh, green jumpsuits. Green jumpsuits um, to khakis and polos. So we, so we switched to the khakis and polos. I know you're one of the sharpest dressed people I know. Yeah, thanks. You always, that is I, a nice sweater. While I was Take a guest that. on your podcast, we were, I think it's actually before we went on, uh, on mic though, you were just trying to talk me into, man, you got to suit it up sometimes, man. Yeah. But like... What is that? Because a lot of people see that as like respectability, uh, not politics, but you know, just that thing of, oh, got a, oh, here we go. I'm looking at a picture right now. So you got khaki colored. Are those wind pants or are they straight up khakis? Oh, those straight up khakis, man. Okay. That's a uh, famous Mart right there. With a nice Carolina blue polo buttoned all the way up. Is that a rule? Not necessarily. Okay. I mean, they could button one, button right. two, button three. <laughs> but they do. Um, so they do the light blue on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. We do light gray on Tuesday, Thursdays. Right. So tell me the importance of that. What that, what that does. I'd rather wear a jumpsuit personally. No, just you even wouldn't. out here. You, you, <laughs> you don't sound sane at all. But um, the, the the purpose around it again is one. I think you know, in its in its primal context, is when you look better, you feel better. And, and we want these kids to have a level of self-esteem and a self-worth that comes from, you know, having that image. The image of the jumpsuit, we recognize what that is. That is long-term prison, and there's a mentality and a stigma that comes with that. If we can help with fostering an idea that, hey, listen, where you are is not where you're going to be, mm-hmm. then we, we can find a way to start having your thinking changing and, and having a different trajectory. So part of that, that dress code is that, hey, listen, even though you're here, we're still going to dress you as if you 
were someplace else. Right. And there are school uniforms that look like this. This isn't right. This is a right. New, yeah, that looks pretty, it's pretty. A school uniform. Yeah. So if you were going standard. to let's say you were going to Turning Point Academy, CMS, mm-hmm. they've got the same uniform, right. khaki and polo. But you're going, you're just going to CMS on the outside. So again, you know, a part of what we're trying to do is is create a continuity in which you're learning, you're you're pivoting away from, you know, the things that you thought you knew. Um, and I was talking about, again, I was talking about that today with officers I was training. We're talking about value systems. A lot of these kids, we, we know where folk get their values from, mm-hmm. usually from parents, someone who raised you. Here we are trying to tell you that some of the things that you've learned are wrong. And now you're going against everything they thought they knew. The value system that you, you're trying to tell me my mama was wrong mm-hmm. or, or the kid in my neighborhood who's sagging his pants all the way down to the floor is wrong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that takes time, but it also takes modeling. <clears throat> And, and, and I'm big as, you know, as, as, as a director now, when we talk about hiring practices, I'm big on hiring folk that will model those same behaviors because those kids need to see it. Those kids see me all the time. And I'm telling you, that's, they always talk about how I'm dressed. Mm-hmm. They, call it, they call it the cradle drip. You know, kids talk about drip. Cam's got the drip, all that. And they say, yo, cradle got that drip. Because what they're looking at is a, is a young person, a young man in their life now that they probably would never come in contact with that one has a PhD, two, I look like them. And three, you know what I'm saying, they're looking at someone who's dressed and they're saying, wow, like what, like, how'd you get there? Well, here are the steps. And I'm telling you, you can be more than what I've done if you start taking those proper steps to getting there. That, that is how this works. Right. And we're modeling behaviors, we're having conversation, and we're making sure that these kids, particularly black boys, because our population is 89% African American. The other sliver is Latino, and we might have one white boy and one Asian kid. That's it. And, and I tell folks, we don't shy away from race at the sheriff's office. Mm-hmm. And we got a well, lot I know of, it. Since, we got a lot of black boys to save. Since McFadden took over, for sure. We got a lot of black boys to save. And, and they need to see men like myself and other men that we bring in there that can model those behaviors and let them know, hey, listen, we've come from those same neighborhoods, but you don't have to end up there. This is what you can do, and we're going to help get you there. And the clothes are a part of that. Right. I had never known uh, that people use the word drip. Man, you gotta get hit. Like that nope. oh. I had not a clue until just now. It's drip, the sauce. You gotta have a sauce. Yeah, sauce I'm familiar with. So drip. The sauce, the, never heard of that before. So the, <laughs> so the, so the, the, the drip comes from the sauce. Okay. You, you drip okay. the sauce. Yeah, all right. Makes sense. He's a Yankee. You listen, man, you're a Yankee fan. I knew man, about so drip. Look. Come on. Uh, we haven't even discussed the Yankees thing, but we're gonna take a little break and t- get it. Get a quick message from Queen City Podcast Network, who's bringing you news hounds, and uh, we'll come back for the second half. We got a few different topics to talk about. So, going to officially endorse Gary McFadden for re-election. Right. <laughs> All right, we'll be back in just a minute. How long do runners need to stretch before hitting the road? This is a 60-second training tip powered by Ortho Carolina. Stretching muscles while the body is at rest can lengthen muscles and help runners improve performance, reduce injuries, and recover from a tough run faster. But how long should a good stretch last? The simple answer is 30 seconds. This allows your cold muscles to relax and be ready for work. Taking the time to stretch properly is critical, especially if you're coming back from an injury. Something to note though, stretching a muscle group for longer than 30 seconds can actually decrease your speed and hurt your performance. In addition to a good pre-run stretch, spend some time after your run and stretch the same muscle groups for 30 seconds as well. 
This has been your 60-second training tip powered by Ortho Carolina, official team physicians of the Carolina Panthers and proud sponsor of the Queen City Podcast Network. For more training tips or to make an appointment, visit orthocarolina.com. We are back. Episode 5 of Queen City Nerves Newshounds Podcast. We are here with Keith Cradle and my co-host Justin LaFrancois, as usual. Just had a great I think, discussion, I think. I think that you almost said drip at the end of Queen City. No. Yeah. I don't think that'll ever be a thing that gets said around here. Um, not drip itself. I mean Queen City drip, which Justin is in a very public uh, Twitter rant. argument about. Fucking rant about that. At the <laughs> <laughs> the, um, I don't even want to call it the new alternative news source. But let's Just moving on before we get too petty. Uh, we got Keith Cradle in the house and we were talking juvenile justice in the first half. But as usual, we will switch topics here and talk about some, some stuff that's been happening in the city. Um, and we want to start with the big news story that sort of popped off and got a lot of people in local media talking this week, which was, and apparently it's been covered for years by some <laughs> national outlets, which to me is the most interesting part of the conversation, but it has to do with Foundation for the Carolinas, philanthropy company here at Charlotte, that is a donor-advised funding um, organization, meaning that it will take money that you want to give to charitable organizations and give it to those organizations for you, and you don't have to be held accountable for it. It's anonymous, so it's, right. not, mm -hmm. your, it's not on your tax. And like. the main thing that people, it was in a sludge report uh, in an article that was published on Tuesday of this week in which that was pointing out just the millions, hundreds of millions of dollars that have gone into anti-immigration mm -hmm. organizations uh, in recent years. And this is, I mean, this is big money we're talking about here, stuff that a lot of that most nonprofit organizations don't see in 10 years, um, that sort of funding. And people really reacted to it. Um, now looking back, I've seen that it's been covered as an issue a couple times over the last few years by Politico, different national outlets have talked about it. It all seems to come back to a man named Fred Stanback. And this is, I want to say, speculation because nobody can Prove, confirm like, who the actual donor is that funneled his money or their money through foundation for the carolinas but he seems to be the one guy who is very big on this anti-humanist environmentalism which is just a crazy term but it has to do with population control based on conservation there's also just very strict immigration very right-wing immigration groups that are tied to stephen miller that are funded through this uh mystery donor and people are really I think the biggest thing to me now is, and this counts for me too, because I've been in local media for 10 years and I've not really heard this said, and this is covering activists who are now all telling me, well, we've known this for years and we've been trying to tell people and not to get defensive, but I, I, I had just never heard of it. But now local media is talking about it for the first time. Um, what it, I don't really know where to start. I don't have a question. I don't want to turn this into a Q&A, but... Uh, I went and talked to Michael Marsicanos, president and CEO of Foundation for the Carolinas today, and, and his sort of retort, he's, he's talked a lot to a bunch of different media this week uh, with regards to this story, and his sort of retort is that they are very strict adherence to a policy of as long as the IRS approves an organization, 
they're going to give the money to where the donor tells them to give the money. Thoughts? <laughs> well, then, and I asked if they do any research on the nonprofits that they funnel that money to, and you told me they couldn't because that's 20000 a year that right. they do. They give 20000 grants, I guess you could call them a year, fund 20,000 different, um, just 20,000 different funding projects, let's call it that. Um, so that's a big reason for their uh, decision to just go with what's IRS approved. The other is to sort of try to stay out of wading into the waters of politics uh, as far as they, they, his point to me was, okay, so the SPLC has called, Southern Piedmont Law Center has called three or four of the groups that they were funneling funding to a hate group or hate groups. But his point to me was there are groups on the right side of things who call SPLC itself a hate group. SPLC also gets funding through Foundation of the Carolinas. When I say funding through Foundation of the Carolinas, I just want to make it clear. These are from donor-advised funds, meaning the donor gives the money and they tell them where to put it. Mm -hmm. There's a separate entity of or a separate part of Foundation for the Carolinas that gives its own money to causes that it sees fit through its board decisions, and that actually usually leans pretty left, pro-immigration, things like that. These are all donor-advised givings. So I think the real discussion here comes down to, is it a moral issue when you're discussing groups that actually try to take rights away from people as opposed to give people more rights? I think that's the main discussion. Yeah, I think, um, you know, you got some smart people over at, you know, Foundation, um, and, and I think, again, the amount of people that they hire, the amount of money that they have, part of that is taking in information and recognizing what's going on. If they've known this and they haven't course corrected, I think that falls upon them. And I think that speaks in terms of decision making on their part. Um, can you tell someone what to do with their money? No. Because if, if I've got $20 and I want to give it to you know dogs with a limp, mm -hmm. it is what it is. You can't tell me what to do, per se. But... If we should that, launch that nonprofit tonight. Let's go for it. But but I think, you know, looking at what's going to happen, the backlash, the conversation, I think they need to be smart about their next steps. Right. And saying, you know, because I think, I think you know, Foundation is probably one of the largest donor-advised funds, I think, in the country. I think yeah, they're right. maybe it is. third largest, second or third largest? Second. Right. And so, you know, what is a couple of million off the top to move out and say, listen, we, we appreciate you, but you need to go somewhere right. else. And, and I think that's part of that conversation that I'm quite sure Michael, the board, other folk are going to have, because is it really worth the PR? Is it worth the conversation right. that, that people that trust you in this community are going to look at this and say, well, you know, can you play both, it's that, can you play both sides of the fence? Right. Well, you know, they gave money to folk who hate immigration, but we gave it to people who enjoy immigration. Mm -hmm. and, and that balances us out. It, it doesn't work that way. And right. some, some things, it's either you're in or you're out. And I think they're going to have to decide, moving forward, do we need this kind of attention? Because it, I think ultimately it, it'll take away from all the good you're doing. Right. And I think a crucial question that I went over with Michael to this morning was whether they are even allowed to get, t tell someone. I think I, I defined it as donor um, directed funds as opposed to donor advised, where. It's donor advised, so legally the law says you can tell someone we're not going to put that money right there. Right. The you have ownership of that money as the foundation, and where it's going to go. Now he had said he had um, referenced a case in San Francisco where a similar foundation was given money and, and advised 
to go to bring to give it to Marin County across mm-hmm. the bay. And in court, it was found. They said, "Well, we were giving money to San Francisco organizations, so we're not going to give it to Marin County." Now that was taken to court by the donor, and then it, the donor was found to be right in court, and they ruled that you have to give this money to the people that the donor's giving it to. So, the way Michael sees it is the tax law says we can't refuse to to do this, and the case law says that we wait. The tax law says that we can refuse this. The ta- the case law says that we can't. Now that's, but they in- can refuse it by just not taking the money. I was say, right, exactly. Right. Oh they yeah, can't, absolutely. They can't funnel it somewhere so different. Right. right, but they could just be like, no, so we're not doing so that. Sorry. And I asked them about is there a line in the sand because there, where something could be IRS approved and you're going to say, well, that's just something we're not going to do because they will have a board discussion if something came to that. Big of a conclusion. Uh, I mean, that big of a discussion, but it, it's really a hypothetical situation. Right. And you can't well, they really could have answer. they could have red flagged right nonprofits that they don't donate money to. Mm-hmm. And if the, oh, absolutely, if the donor who's advising it doesn't like it, then fucking take your take money, your money directly yeah. to them. Sorry, we're not going to hide it from the IRS when it comes tax season. Right. And but I'm, I mean, it's also capitalism because foundations takes a fee for all donations right. that are made. So it's a shitload of money that they'd probably be missing out on. Oh right. Like that, I said, they're smart. Maybe folk. they don't want to take cut. Right. Yeah. And they're smart people over there. I oh, think, yeah. You know, they. I. I gotta believe they've known. Um. You know, they. I'm quite sure they employ a very great legal team. Oh yeah. And and and, and so I think in those conversations. You know, you would think about what are the broad implications, and a lot of times, unless this, you, you got to think about information transfer nowadays. Twenty years ago, no one could have probably uncovered this shit. Right. But now, with people the way they're mining data and understanding things, it's gonna come out. And I and I think they were probably hiding from the fact that this probably wasn't gonna come out. You know, all of a sudden, and then we can twist and purport a story that sounds like, well, we can't tell people what to do. But you don't have to keep the money. Yeah. No. You can move on. You can absolutely tell people what to do. Exactly. You can tell them to fuck off. Right. And I think that's going to be the interesting thing moving forward. Um, because even Michael said, and this is an interesting point I just brought up earlier in passing, is this has been talked about for years. And, and people have brought it up at different times in his 20 years as president and CEO. But it's just now being brought up by local media for there the first go. time. It's coming to is, light. Where has that been right. for all this time? And he said he thinks he credits it to the fever pitch of the debate around President Trump and immigration policies. Um, I wonder. I wonder if it's... But that was only... That was only that's only been three years. Three years. Right. Yeah. So I'm, I'm very interested to see how that's going to move forward. I'm, I'm very intrigued into that whole media conversation as to just where the coverage has been because a lot of people... I was talking to someone else very high up in the arts and community, community organizing um, community here in Charlotte. I don't even know... They didn't say not to use their name because they didn't know that I'd be bringing this up later, but I don't want to use it without their permission. But they were saying that just how many people are very afraid of ever crossing Michael Marsicano or Foundation because they are one of the most powerful organizations in Charlotte, oh, hell yeah. just as far as funding. And, I didn't I mean, know who the hell they were until yesterday. Really? <laughs> well, they're making no. things. You know what they are, Justin? They're, they're movers and shakers. Oh, that's you didn't know who the foundation was? Nope. Seriously. How long have no you been idea. in Charlotte? 15 years. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> <laughs> so, I've been blind for a long time. But I'm just interested to see how they're going to move forward because, like you said, Keith, that, that, that tarnishes their reputation and they do a lot of work. Michael is one of the leading 
he's spearheaded this whole leading on opportunity council thing. That's a big part of the response to the can't uprising. Play, and can't play both sides. Right. It's a tough thing, especially these days. Um, but you can when you get big enough to the point where you really people can't are scared fucking, to talk you about can't you. Police it. Well, plus you can't police it. Right. I feel like if I was in charge of that much money, that many donations, that many donors, uh, and being the second largest funding whatever in the whatever, that's a lot of fucking stuff to stay on top of. Right. He told me today that they have 70 different boards within Foundation of Car- well, for the Carolinas. I'm sure they're going to start a social responsibility one dedicated just to this. 71. After. <laughs> so moving ahead, uh, earlier this week, Charlotte Housing Authority unveiled a new name and a new logo. Um, uh, rep- or stating bad stigma against the words housing and authority as the reason for doing so. They are now going to be going by in Livion. Am I saying that right? I Does think you did. Know? I think or you did. In Livion. Or in Livion. It's spelled I N L I V I A N. In Livion. And it reflects the organization's rich past and bright future. I read that from a press release, if you couldn't tell. Um, now, a little bit of background Charlotte Housing Authority, established 1939. Today, it provides housing and support to over 10,000 households in Charlotte, Mecklenburg County. As we all know, affordable housing being one of the top issues, if not the top issues, in sh- top issue in Charlotte. Um, Fulton Meacham, we were founded to serve after the Great Depression. This is CEO Fulton Meacham. Sorry, I just start talking as if everybody knows. Uh, in the 80 years since, we have evolved and now provide housing solutions to help address Charlotte's diverse housing challenges and improve the quality of life. Our new name in Livion better reflects the agency we are today. I'm wondering... What this, what this does? I'm all for trying to fight back against stigma, but I'm wondering if the name does that. Oddly enough, I I know people who worked on that campaign. Mm-hmm. I'm not gonna say their name, but I, but I also saw some stuff on Facebook. People said it sounds like Olivion sounds like a new drug. Right. Ask what Olivion has done for you. <laughs> One of those things where <laughs> they show a person dancing in a field and right. there's 20 sound side effects. Um, I, I, this I, antidepressant I, might cause suicidal uh, thoughts. Right. Right. Ask if Elyon is good for you and your doctor. If your doctor prescribes, <laughs> but I, I think um, you know, just one rebranding it, were they due for it? Probably yes. Mm-hmm. Um, we understand affordable housing is a huge topic in our community right now. The Charlotte Housing Authority now and Livian has been the main driver in that, mm-hmm. um, particularly where folk live. I think I think the irony in all of of this though is that affordable housing and, and places that they once managed are, are starting to get smaller and are starting to go away. As more development gentrification is happening, the places that these, these homes and these housing developments were mm-hmm. are starting to move out, you know, be bulldozed to make way for something else. Right. And so that, you know, I think the irony in that is that they're trying to move people into a place where the name means more than the people that have lived there. Mm-hmm. And, and so without rebranding the actual company, the actual morals, the values, the housing, you know, we'll start with a name. And, and I don't know where that gets you, right. but, you know, at the end of the day... It's like you a know, new shower curtain. Exactly. And you didn't clean the tub. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you still got to do the work. Um, and they and they are doing for the for all, you know, give credit to Meacham and the work that's being done with what they have. I mean, some of the projects that they're doing in Southside, um, just as far as employment and childcare and things like that, have, have been really been impressive. I mean, Southside, I get worried about. I drive through it every time I deliver the papers, and I'm just concerned with how long until that it's follows. Gone. Yeah, until that follows Brook Hill right north of it. Oh, it's not going to be long. I mean, right. I, you know, we were talking about. I was talking about that to um, someone today about that where. 
when you look at, um, particularly for us in criminal justice, you look at crime mapping, you look at GIS mapping and zip coding. You know, 20 years ago, there were a ton of neighborhoods that were considered, quote unquote, fragile, distressed, underserved. As, as development and gentrification moved in, those neighborhoods shrink and you're starting to move people to other places. Mm -hmm. And so now you're, you're thinking about, again, that shrinkage once more. So where are, these, where are all these people gonna go? And where all is this housing going to go? When you got a lot of folk, you know, with that, they call it NIMBY. Well, not in my backyard. Right. So a lot of these developments and neighbors are saying, listen, I, 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 I want folk to have an affordable place to live. Just not here. Not here, right. yeah. So where else, Charlotte, you know, as, as, you know, my mom told me, you know, when she's like, you know, there's no new land. Mm -hmm. So it's not there like. there is. They're wait. building a 220 acre Central Park. Well, that, that land is already there. <laughs> no, that land is already there. Yeah, it's well, not like they went and found new land. All I'm saying is. big park. <laughs> there's no new land in terms of all of a sudden, you know, Christopher Columbus, his lion ass is going to say, oh, listen, <laughs> look over there. What I'm saying is... Didn't expect a Columbus reference in this podcast. It's good stuff. And only Christopher we acknowledge is Wallace. Right. So, <laughs> so in that, there, there's not going to be a lot of places to start parking people and their families. Mm -hmm. and, and so you know, you, you're thinking about that, again, in the context in which we, what we think is affordable. When we say affordable housing, well, what's affordable to you might not be affordable to me. Right. How, and and that, that's the conversation. Anything, that's right. the real conversation. That's what I want to say. You can change your name to whatever the fuck you want. That's what I'm saying. Like, how much do how the words matter as far as this? Because I understand stigma, and, and I wouldn't want to. I'm from a point of privilege where I've never had to tell someone I live in the housing authority or a project, which is what people called it before that. And um, food stamps changing over to EBT, and don't call them food stamps anymore. Right. Does that? Do you feel like that has an effect? Nah, because because yeah. folk because the folk who are in it. They're still there. They're still in it. Right, yeah. exactly. That's what the point is. You, you, yeah. yeah. you can change the name of anything. If I know I'm on welfare, it'll now look you call prettier. Anything, right. right. It's still so somebody who's not on it. Still right. welfare. So um, I always thought, though, that welfare was just a fine name for what it was. Okay. It's all the same. I don't know how that right. one could People be still sell an EBT card. <laughs> they, they used to sell the, the stamps, now they sell the cards. Right. It's mm -hmm. all the same. Yeah, exactly. And the um, stamps were just a card. That's all it is. Yeah. Moving forward. Me and uh, Justin and I, sorry, I started to just forget all grammar by the end of this podcast. So y'all got gramma y have grammatical accuracy, and, but y'all don't have fucking rules on how to pour drinks and no not put your mouth on a bottle. No I'm, etiquette. I don't understand. I'm that not shit. the bartender. No here. etiquette. That's <laughs> uh, most backward shit stuff I've ever I put seen my in mouth on when I'm behind. So the Justin bar. and I got a chance to. Um, I'm glad that I got to turn the Yankees fans against each other instead of turning on I'm me. I was expecting to get. I'm still with them. Um. We got a chance to walk through the new Levine addition to the home CLT exhibit, which is Brooklyn. The uh, name awesome exhibit, right? It's a really great exhibit. It's a uh, Brooklyn. For those who don't know, quick run through was probably the most booming African American town or Coast, neighborhood, yeah. um, basically like a black business district within the in the middle of Charlotte, what is now Second Ward. Mm -hmm. Thousands um, of families up until in the '60s. Uh, it started to just get completely raised due to urban renewal projects and just straight racism, and and that's just how it happened. This new this new exhibit really goes into that in depth, and it shows really pictures that stuck with me. Mayor Stan Brookshire, who I'll be honest with you, I didn't know what Brookshire was named after, but it's got a picture right there up front of the exhibit of him knocking mm -hmm. down a home in Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah. It was just months. Sledgehammer. Yeah. It was just months after he got elected mm -hmm. as mayor, or took over as mayor, 
that he just started literally knocking down hand, homes with his own hands. Um, and within that time... Wooden, rock-raised homes. Yeah, everybody was pushed out. And now we have Marshall Park and a bunch of government buildings, but... That won't be there long either. Right. No, yeah. So that's what I sort of wanted to use this. Let's give a quick rundown of the, the augmented reality, because I want to talk about that before yeah. we go into what's happening with Brooklyn Village. But what they're using in this exhibit for the first time is the augmented reality app that allows you to sort of get interactive with it. They have a big map of Charlotte-Mecklenburg County on the ground. You take an iPad or your phone, look at it, and you're able to really go through graphs that actually show you the infamous Crescent Wedge and how it developed since 1960. Yep. Um, 1960 to 2009, I think. Right, stuff like that. And I'm just very excited about this. I've always said augmented reality. Ever since that Pokemon game came out, I was just like, mm-hmm. this augmented reality has such a... You played it? No, I didn't. Oh. No, you um, look like the type, though. Um, that's fucked up. <laughs> Brian is so not the fucking type. No, to play that. but uh, let me see your phone. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just think the educational pro- like potential for augmented reality is huge, and I've always had this idea for this app that's similar to what they're going to be doing soon. Gosh, somebody can take it. I know. That's why I'm not going to say it all the way. It costs them like a hundred grand, right? Mm. In 2020. They are going to be doing walking tours through this same exhibit where you can walk through Second Ward, Marshall Park area, and see some of these old buildings. Be- buildings. Just through your phone, yeah. Yeah, because, what was it, 200,000 buildings have now been down to four. Mm-hmm. I think there are four original. 200,000? I think. Am I wrong about that or 20,000? Maybe 20,000. Yeah. yeah. If they're talking about homes, I mean, still 200,000. Go check qcnerve.com and our review of this okay. exhibit and you'll see the I'll check it. Right. But only stats. a couple are still there. Right. Four are left. That I know. Yes. yes. I know that. So you can go and walk the streets and see the corners. Uh, Alexander Funeral Home, yep. which is the father of Kelly Alexander, who's yep. now a state rep. Yep. Um, all sorts of different businesses and buildings that were a big deal, I mean, to a lot of people and, and was the center of the community. Um, that just excites me. I don't have any question or discussion about that. But it's that, real. But I, I think yeah. you know, you're, you're speaking to, again, the history of Charlotte. Um, as new folk continue to move here, you know, we don't do a good job at, at teaching folk, you know, what Charlotte was before they got here. Everyone gets here. If you've, if you've been here for a year or two and you're just moving in for a bank job, you're thinking the epicenter was always there. You're right. thinking that all these great restaurants, the well, nightlife. that be gone too soon. Oh, yeah, that'd be gone Maybe too. we should talk about that. What? They can I'm have that. About that yeah. But Pepper that's what centers. it is. I mean, you know, oh. you're thinking about, you know, Charlotte changing over the course of time. Right. And that, you know, one time, you know, Charlotte Uptown was dead. Right. You know what I'm saying? You know, people didn't stay past 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock. Oh, sorry. Uh, 7,000 7, African Americans, 1,500 buildings. Oh, jeez. Okay, way, way off. off. Way <laughs> off. Your math was way off. people didn't even live in Charlotte at that point. Your I'm like thinking back now off. what I said. Okay. But yeah, but I think, you, I think this all goes in again to the context of what has happened historically with black and brown families. Um, you know, you think about, you know, I think one of the best series on right now, Watchmen, on HBO, mm-hmm. and they, they they showcase the Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yeah, you know, I'm, I mean, oh, all like, these that things. Was supposed to be tonight. that event tonight. We were going to skip this podcast all together and go to Black <laughs> Wall Street. Me, it was a Black yeah. Wall Street USA event. Going to skip me, but no, <laughs> but but what I'm saying is, you know, you're seeing these things now because of information that was out there, but now folk are finally putting it on the front line. Mm-hmm. And I think we're no longer afraid to talk about the things that have happened. I, I think people need to be informed, particularly our youth. Um, and the families that were affected by this, you know, because when we think about, you know, generational wealth, we talk about, you know, this opportunity to folk to be a part of the society in its holistic form. If you're taking away from people's opportunity to do that, and we and we talk about in America, home ownership being one of those cornerstones 
to building wealth. Mm-hmm. If I owned a home and you took it from me, what is that saying? And, and I think we have to think about why folk are starting this race from behind, you know, laps behind because of systemic oppression, racism, white supremacy. And now I think, I think Charlotte is finally saying, hey, listen, we're cool to talk about it. It's okay right. to talk about it and put it on display in some of our bigger institutions and have these conversations. Right. And I applaud Charlotte for that. Yeah, Levine is great for doing that, but then at the same time, there's controversy over what's actually going there now, which is the Brooklyn Village, uh, 17 acres, $700 million project. Uh, less than 10% of it's going to be affordable housing. Right. The rest will be probably priced out to God knows what. Two different hotels, all sorts of retail. 107 affordable yeah. housing um, units. You look here. Of 107 yeah, apartments. Of, of 1,200. Out of 1,243. Yeah. Two hotels with 280 rooms. Um, Which means nothing to 252,000 square feet of retail space, 680,000 square feet of offices. Now, here's my question because... So you do have a question now. Yeah, now I do. I'm just, you know, I'm sitting here. I'm just spitballing. What do you want? But, uh, so... The, the folks, we are Brooklyn. You see their T-shirts. They come to city council meetings. They're fighting to get a museum at the very least, if not far more affordable housing and employment for not only families of people who lived in Brooklyn, um, but just uh, underserved people in general. I'm absolutely all behind that. That needs to be taken into consideration and, and done. More than 107 units of affordable housing to respect just the fact of where you're at with Brooklyn Village. But let's just say... Where it is right now, the plan is right now, or Marshall Park, which I have a certain feeling for because I've covered so many different protests there there, and all sorts of stuff. But at the same time, a lot of people will tell you, you know, Marshall Park's dead. Whenever you walk by it, there's nobody there. What's the point of it? What what would you rather see there out of those two things? So I'll say I I I'm on I, I think I'm kind of on the other I, I think Marshall Park is trash I, mm-hmm. I think I think you know it probably served its purpose when it was first built I think what you can do is redevelop the space for mixed use but also create more green space in I, a responsible I'm on, way yeah, yeah I think you can do that I think but what's like there the now is trash mm-hmm. you're right and, and it needs to go I mean and that yeah, pond is, I'm is, not, is listen, brown it's I, not even I'll green be the anymore. first to admit I'm, I only have memories there because of things that I've covered there that are meaningful. Yeah, it's a thing. It's not it's a pretty. It's, it's a not place. the prettiest place. And it's a gathering never place. There's a lot of people there. Yeah, no, definitely place. not. Absolutely. And once CMS moved out of that, you know, they were over there too in that in the building, the education center right there. Once they moved out, or if they're still there, I don't know. But, you know, when people start moving away from that area, you have to think about what's going on. And, right. and I think they need to redevelop, but I think you can add green space in there. Absolutely. Yeah. And quickly, before we let Justin give us a heartwarming story to come out of here, um, what, are you, what are your thoughts about the epicenter now? It's the story's breaking that they're going to stop renewing leases for bars and entertainment stuff and, and just so start bringing in office you. and retail and make it a mall, basically. I just don't care either fucking way. I mean, yeah, I people never go. Are gonna, people are going to drink there or people are going to shop there. And I'm not going to drink or shop there. Right. I'm sorry. I thought you were going to ask about us finally letting Jacoby Ellsbury go. Son of Yankees, a bitch. You know, because he was a Red Sox. <laughs> he, was, he was your guy first. Yeah. I like Jacoby. <laughs> and, now, and now we finally... I don't moved, want him back now. Moving the fuck on. anything yeah. for us. I told somebody he got paid $26 million just to go home. Who needs a big... Who's going to make I the first big move out of us, out of the Red Sox-Yankees? I think it's us. You guys are cash-strapped. Well, we Boys also are the most strapped. recent world champions. No, you're not. <laughs> Yes, we are. No, you're not. The Washington no, I mean, Nationals. Of, the Washington out of the Nationals. Red Sox and, and Yankees, I mean. Oh. Yeah. Well, you didn't say For a that. second, you had me thinking, like, what? 
Um, so, Justin, you have a story to tell us. And yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Heartwarming. Yeah. Um, so there's this bison up there. <laughs> what? In Oregon. Just, Keith hasn't listened to this show yet. He doesn't know how we roll out of here. I just I I leave off with my favorite news topic. Good thing I've been drinking. Uh, first 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 sentence for years. Helen, the blind bison, lived mostly alone. She roamed a field in North Salem, following the sound of her owner's voice to food and barn. So then she moved to this place called Lighthouse Farm Sanctuary in Shio, Shio, S-C-I-O, Oregon, and nobody would become friends with her because she is a blind bison. None of the other 200 pigs, cows, chickens, hens, or bison would come be friends with her. It's a little fucked up. But then Oliver... There were uh, him? What? Nothing. Then Oliver, the Jersey calf, comes up and he's non-discriminatory and he just becomes friends with Helen who can't see him. Probably thinks he's another bison, just a small guy. You should see the pictures. They're completely different in size. One's this tall, one's this tall. And uh, Helen treats Oliver like her son. You said Helen's blind? Helen is blind. Okay. So Oliver's mom... I think her name was Ethel or Mildred or something Midwestern. And uh, Oliver's mom drops her off at drops him off at daycare each day, and then Helen shows up. First of all, what? Oh, sorry, the quotes. I put air quotes around that daycare. Where do they go? What is the quote? I mean, what is it? Ethel takes Oliver to the daycare area, which is where all the young animals hang out. And then Helen comes in. And just pals around with Oliver all day and takes care of him. And it's just, it's really beautiful, you know? Uh, they're crossing lines. One's a calf, one's a bison, one's blind, one's not. Just, it's how, how long was this bison lonely for? Years. Okay, that's not good enough. Years. Okay, just a That's lot. longer than months. <laughs> you don't care you that think? this blind bison was lonely? I absolutely do. I just told you. He sounds so much. <laughs> all right. Well, Keith... We really appreciate you coming through. Thank you. We got a long off season ahead of us before we can start watching baseball again. Yeah, that's one people to know I wasn't a part of that last story. Right, <laughs> I, I got a rep to maintain. And yeah, just no. A, and duck, ducks hanging out with cat. If, with, first of all, if I found a story about a duck hanging out with cat, I would talk about that too. I, don't, I missed it. I don't give credit is, to those stories to anybody except who wrote them. Listen, and uh, I don't even know who that was in the newsroom all day. If he finds any story like that. I'm hearing all about it, so now you guys have to, too. R.I.P. Yapani. Yes. And shout out to episode one. Shout back. Um, Keith, man, we really appreciate you coming on. <laughs> this has been a great talk <laughs> up until right now. Yeah, we're good. We're good. Um, Ryan, we're good. All right. Justin, we'll work on it. <laughs> but uh, appreciate you coming on. Anytime, Keep man. up the great work. Anytime. Appreciate you. What do you... I want to say one more thing. What's 2020? Just give us a one sentence, two 40. sentence. What, what's the goals? I mean, for me, you know, never not working. I'm always doing something. So, you know, we got the book that's out. We just dropped the cologne. Cheers. Oh, shit. That's what I wanted to say. Yeah, I had it in my notes. Cologne. So you wanna, plug if, the you dra- wanna, if you want to smell like me, man, if you want to smell like me, man, if you want to smell like success. No, Keith, people want to look like you. So he said he's 44 earlier in this I episode. Am. He looks like he is right. just cresting 30. So yeah. the secret yeah. to that, drink water and mind your business. Nice. Um, yeah, and and like so, so really, so we got, no we got where do they talk. find the fragrance? You can just go to my website, man, keithcradle.com. We got the podcast on there, the book is on there, and the fragrance is on there. That's what's so up. 2020, man. that's what we're doing. Visit keithcradle.com. We'll see you on uh, episode six in two weeks. Thanks for listening. It's been uh, Queen City Nerves News Hounds. <laughs> <laughs>